we call power the dark matter of economics. It's the most important thing. The failing of not factoring in power is that it doesn't address the way that monopolies are much harder to stop than they are to prevent. It shouldn't be that everybody's forced to choose big tech or big content because no matter which giant you choose, you're going to be settling for the crumbs from their table. Is there a lesson to be learned here? Yeah, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. <laughs> From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. A lot of our listeners are familiar with your origin story, Nick, but uh, I want to take a few minutes to talk about mine, if that's okay with you. It is hunky-dory, Goldie. <laughs> okay. So uh, folks here in, in, in Washington State uh, may know me a bit as uh, a uh, ballot initiative crackpot who became a foul-mouthed political blogger, who which got him a talk uh, radio show, which eventually... Uh, it got me uh, a job at The Stranger where I was eventually fired for writing too honestly about Uber and the $15 minimum wage, which brought me to you. But actually, Nick, <laughs> we have something in common in that earlier on in my life, I was an entrepreneur. That's uh, right. I was the creator, the developer, the editor of the programmer of the world's first rhyming dictionary software. Uh, which I originally created for my own use, but uh, I decided to have it published. It was such a useful tool. And after about a year and a half of failing to find a publisher who was interested in something that may only sell, you know, a few tens of thousands of units a month at uh, most, which wasn't good enough for them, my then wife and I, we started our own little software publishing company, uh, to publish uh, this product, which we called A Zillion Kajillion Rhymes. And it was a, a great experience, I have to say, in many, many ways. But one of the things I learned very early on was that the closer you are to creating content, the less money you make off of it. The further you are away, the more money you, you make. It wasn't a losing, we didn't lose money uh, very much in this business. Most years we eked out a small profit, but we had to go through this publishing industry where either we sold through the mail order catalogs and 70% of software in the 90s was sold through four mail order catalogs. And to get in those mail order catalogs, you had to buy hundreds, eventually thousands of dollars a month of co-op advertising just to be able to be in the catalog. That's how they made their money. It wasn't selling software. That's why it was so cheap. They made their money selling advertising to the publishers. Or the other 30% was through retail, which kept consolidating. And to get into retail, you had to sell through a distributor. And to get into, into the distributor, you had to 
buy what they called market development funds, which was merely just a bribe to get into the distributor so you could get on the shelf at these large retailers who then also charged you co-op advertising to stay on the shelf if you if you wanted to be there. And so a product which we sold direct for 50 bucks, which we sold into wholesale for $25 a unit that only cost us a buck 50 a unit to make in terms of the physical shrink wrapped box, we'd be lucky to make 50 cents off of that in the end. A couple years after that, Nick, the Palm OS, the first yeah, you know right. pre-iPhone took off. And there were a couple of app stores selling Palm Palm software. And on a, so on a whim, I ported that that search engine for the the rhyming dictionary over to Palm and put it on these stores where it was a model people are familiar with today because Apple it's the Apple App Store model. Uh, they took thirty percent and I got seventy percent, and it cost me nothing to be there. And it was like a free ATM for a couple of years. There was always money coming into my bank account because I didn't have to do anything. It just sold. It was in the app store. It wasn't a ton of money, but it was more money than I made selling, you know, 100,000 units of that rhyming dictionary for Mac or Windows. I could make selling a few hundred a month on uh, this app store. And I thought it would be amazing. This is the future. Content creators are finally free and we're going to make all the money and the uh, the old infrastructure is going to fall. And my God, was I wrong. It turned out, Nick, the Internet wasn't nearly as democratizing as I thought it would be. It turned out that uh, it was uh, your your buddy, Jeff, who who got it right from the very start. Yeah. For sure. You you definitely wanted to be on that side of the trade because that's the that's the side that uh, you can consolidate. And, and you know, ultimately money, you know, profits are a, are a product of market power and mm -hmm. um, there's no market power intrinsic in, you know, making a niche product. Uh, right. And there's tremendous market power in, in consolidating millions and millions of customers and in general i i would say i can't say this with authority but it's my instinct that the best businesses in the world traditionally have been customer creation businesses where basically you're selling customers to other people which is what google does um and kind of ultimately what amazon does right that's you know they are a gateway through which uh customers go to reach products from other people and and look you know, we live in a world where Amazon today is the is the example of this egregious behavior. But for as long as there have been retailers or, you know, like th this problem has existed for a really long time, although it was much less severe when the country had actual antitrust uh, enforcement. Uh, but when that when that went away with the effectively when the when the neoliberals took over and all that went away it just got worse and worse and worse and you you know you, your experience is sort of typical of what happened to folks and you know hopefully we can begin to reverse that and uh, today we we get to talk to some people who desperately want to reverse these trends 
uh, Corey Doctorow and Rebecca Giblin, who have just uh, written a book called Choke Point Capitalism, when exploitive businesses create insurmountable barriers to competition. I'm Corey Doctorow, and I write science fiction novels. I've been with the Electronic Frontier Foundation for 20 years, and I'm also a journalist. The new book is Choke Point Capitalism, which I co-wrote with my colleague, Rebecca Giblin. I'm Rebecca Giblin. I'm a law professor at Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne. I work at the intersection of law and culture, and I work on trying to solve the fundamental problems around how we do a better job of getting artists paid and ensuring widespread access to knowledge and culture. Why in the world did a science fiction writer and a, I guess, a law professor come together to write a book on capitalism and the effect it has on uh, creatives? Well, you know, we're both veterans of the copyright wars. We've we've both spent a lot of time uh, talking about the importance of flexible copyright regimes. Mm-hmm. And we found ourselves trapped in a kind of uh, endless and, and increasingly pointless debate where you have to pick one side of a binary where you're either on the side of big tech as a proxy for user interests or on the side of big entertainment as a proxy for creators' interests. And neither of them are very good proxies for either. And and both of them, to the extent that they have ever been good for one and bad for the other, it's always been extremely contingent. You know, like the entertainment industry was pretty bad for creators until tech came along and kind of challenged its hegemony. It did some, uh, that, that wreaked some havoc on the entertainment industry, but it also disciplined those firms and made them behave better for creators briefly. Mm-hmm. But even then, uh, it was not smooth sailing because the tech industry quickly consolidated into something that was sort of functionally indistinguishable from the entertainment yes. industry in terms of how it dealt with creators. <laughs> and we just, we got very frustrated with this idea that, you know, as a creator or as someone who cared about the creative industries, that y- you would either brief for, you know, the ogre from the entertainment industry or the ogre from the tech industry. And as these two giants wrestled, you would pray that if you chose the right one, that the victor would dribble a few crumbs to, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, reward you for your loyalty. And we wanted to write a book that was about creators and and other uh, important stakeholders in the creative industry, including information users and audiences, you know, seizing their own destiny and not relying on the largesse of a giant dominant firm and its executives. We, we got so tired of this false dichotomy between creators and users. And what we saw is that the, the it shouldn't be that, that everybody's forced to choose big tech or big content, because no matter which giant you choose, you're going to be settling for the crumbs for their ta- from their table. So we were seeing the problem as being about big. As Corey puts it, right, if you're, you're, your kid's going to school and they're being shaken down at the school da- gate every day by the bullies for their lunch money, you don't solve that problem by giving them more lunch money. And that doesn't right. change. You know, even if the bullies create a nationwide campaign, won't somebody think of the poor, hungry school children? You still don't. <laughs> and you don't go out and give everybody more lunch money. Um, what we wanted to do is come up with a book that didn't just bemoan these problems. Everybody knows that the state of creative labor markets are really dire, that most people really struggle to get paid and that it's getting worse. We didn't want to write yet another book that talks for 10 chapters about how dreary everything is and then have some hand-wavy solutions at the end. We wanted to set out to say, okay, the problem is that there's a power imbalance. But in the whole second half of the book, we wanted to show how everyone can keep hold of their lunch money. 
this particular instantiation of the problems that neoliberal economic theory wrought is not something I'm as familiar with, but it is the story of what's happened in all sorts of industries and all, you know, to all sorts of uh, constituencies over the last 40 or 50 years. And it reminds me, I mean, did, did you know that in neoclassical economics, there is no such thing as power, <laughs> right? It just <laughs> does not exist, <laughs> which is just about the most ridiculous thing in the world. That, well, in fact, well, they know it exists, Nick. They It's just very difficult to model. So they leave yeah. it out. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, power is like uh, what well, we call power the dark matter of economics. It's the it's the most important thing, even though it is very hard to see and quantify. And in no place probably is that more obvious than in the circumstances you guys find yourselves in, in the creative industries. Yeah. And, and another one of the, the wild tenets of Chicago school economics is this idea that we, we only need to worry about how much wealth is created. We don't need to worry at all about how it's divided up. That's not Correct. a problem for economics. Um, he assures us that's that's an area for, uh, you know, that, that's something other areas of law can worry about. But of course, they don't worry about it. Like once you get uh, the kind of concentrated power that you see, once you've had that wealth accumulation um, that, that comes from not worrying how the wealth is divided up, then you get the regulatory capture that we talk about in the book and, you know, all of those, all of those other issues that stop those other areas from, in fact, dealing with it. So it becomes nobody's problem. But in fact, all of our problem. Surely you're not implying that the market isn't Pareto optimal as the Chicago school teaches. <laughs> well, and that, you know, the, the failing of not factoring in power is that it doesn't address the way that monopolies are much harder to stop than they are to prevent. Uh, mm -hmm. That, you know, if you if you have a theory that includes power, then even if you accept the, the precept of Bork that most monopolies are good and that getting rid of the good monopolies will stop the, you know, little Jeffy Bezoses of the world from benefiting us all with their unique, you know, once in a generation genius to get us all next day parcel delivery and, yeah. you know, jars full of urine in the vans that once they once they do accumulate that power, if it turns out that they turn sour. Right. Or, or if they, yeah. you know, have a stroke and their idiot nephew takes over the business, then um, you are really uh, at a loss to regulate them. That, you know, one of the things that I, I find myself talking to colleagues of mine who are anti-authoritarians about is is this idea that the larger the firms are that the state wants to regulate, the larger the state has to be to sort of impedance match them. You know, that yes. IBM outspent the DOJ for 12 consecutive years from 1970 to 1982, you know, bought more antitrust lawyers than the whole U.S. government combined just for this one case that they were on, right. which meant that the state had to have an army of lawyers. And, you know, if you are a small state anti-authoritarian, then you also need to be a small corporation person because otherwise you need a state that's, you know, the only way you 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 deal with Baidu or Tenet is to be the CCP. You know, the, a smaller, less muscular state isn't going to be able to check that power. That's right. And, and you know, the, the philosopher Elizabeth Anderson calls all this private government. Mm. You know, it's like, you know, it's like swapping a bad dog for a monkey. I mean, you, you may not like government, but instead you're, you're, you are stuck with these monolithic authoritarian enterprises that tell you what to do. And, for any of us who has ever um, had personal contact with the types of people who end up running these enterprises, you know, 
that is not good. <laughs> it's not a good circumstance to be in. But I want to ask a, another clarifying question because I think it would be useful to our listeners if you could more directly explain by way of an example what the problem is. Can you talk us through like what happens and why? Well, I mean, there's some pretty pretty straightforward examples. We, we A lot of this book is digging into these um, accounting practices that in the finance industry they call MIGO, my eyes glaze over, which are these things that are sort of performatively complicated. They're complicated so that they'll be hard to be uh, hard to understand, but they pretend that they're hard to understand because they're complicated. But uh, some of them are really straightforward. When I started in the publishing industry, there were about 20 good-sized publishers in New York. When we started writing this book, there were six. Now there's about to be four just means that when your agent goes out to shop your book around, instead of auctioning the book to six publishers or 20 publishers, or even just two out of those 20 who might be interested in it and who can be played off against each other, there's just one. I mean, Stephen King just made this point in the Simon & Schuster merger review where he said, well, you know, Penguin Random House wants to buy Simon & Schuster and uh, they, they claim that they'll still bid against each other for books. And that is just facially absurd. It's like saying yeah. a husband and wife will bid against each other for the same house. Yeah. It, it just doesn't make any sense. But you know, one of the points that we make in the book and that other um, uh, antitrust observers, monopoly observers have, have made before us is that monopoly begets monopoly. You know, the publisher's consolidation was driven by a long run phenomenon in which you had consolidation first in retail. So the big box stores all came together. And that caused a crash in the number of distributors from about 400 to about three, which is now down to one, uh, because the the big box retailers were able to uh, lean on the distributors to to get preferential treatment. And that meant that the only way they could push back was to consolidate. The distributors in their consolidated position began to lean on publishers and the publishers started to consolidate. And now you have retailer distributors like Amazon and, you know, the, the big six publishers that once were got together with Apple to conspire to force Amazon to end its predatory pricing on Kindle books because Amazon was willing to lose money on every book they sold, use their access to the capital markets to become the only place that any any rational person would go for books because they were cheaper there. And then they were going to use that to lock people into the Kindle and, and seize control over the destiny of the publishing industry. So they all got together and they illegally conspired with Apple to rig uh, ebook prices and they all got beaten up by it. And then they just started merging with each other because, you know, if the CEO of Penguin and the CEO of Random House and the CEO of Simon & Schuster get together to arrange a common pricing plan for Amazon, (laughs) that's illegal. But when the presidents of Penguin, Random House, Simon & Schuster, who used to be the CEOs of those three companies, get together in a boardroom under one corporate roof and they have the same conversation, that's perfectly legal. And as with every one of these monopolistic arrangements, you know, we, we focus a lot on what this does to the customers and rightly so. It's, it's not a good program for customers when, when the decisions about what books can get published and how they're marketed is gathered into just four hands. But, you know, it's, it's even worse for the people on the other end of the supply chain, for the creators who are, who are now facing lower wages and, and a more harsh environment and having to give up more concessions. There's some really practical concessions, right? The, the consolidated publishers are now asking for things that writers used to sell separately, like worldwide English rights, audiobook rights, ebook rights, graphic novel rights, film adaption, adaptation rights in some cases. These are, these are rights that you used to go out and sell separately and get another check for. 
now you don't get checks for it. It's not just that you get a lower advance or less marketing, or you're more likely to be struck off if you're if you have a, a book that doesn't perform as well as they'd hoped. But it's also that even with your successful books, you don't share in the bounty the way you used to. When we talk about choke point capitalism, this is coming back to this idea that, you know, a lot of the quiet parts being said out loud now, say what you will about capitalism, but competition is supposed to be fundamental to it. But it is inherently extractive and it, it, lead, it inherently leads to more and more concentration. And so you see Warren Buffett salivating over companies that have what he calls wide sustainable moats, which he means uh, are barriers to other people coming in and competing away those monopoly profits. We have Peter Thiel coming out and saying competition is for losers. This is now what's being taught in business schools. You don't make something, you find a way of locking everybody in so that you can extract more than your fair share of value. And that's what we see throughout throughout this. And that's what we're talking about with the, the idea of choke points, that there's the all of these companies who are setting out to create these hourglass-shaped markets that have got buyers at one end and sellers at the other, and themselves in the middle where they're squatting predatorily at the neck. Um, and in the creative markets, of course, we've got its audiences on one side and creators at the other, and we're seeing exactly the same thing. And um, why it's really interesting to look at it in the context of creative markets is because the tools that are used um, are, you know, such a wide variety and also they've been so incredibly successful. But also we've talked a lot about um, monopoly so far, but perhaps we could mention monopsony as well. Now yeah. we talk a lot about monopsony in the book, less than in the first draft because everybody who read it made us take the word out. Um, <laughs> and uh, we are determined that we can make this sexy, but not everybody's convinced. But um, yeah. this was a term that we love. Uh, we love the word monopsony. So oh, go. Good. Yeah. Well, maybe go, you're the first. Go big. Make it yeah. Sexy. <laughs> or maybe we can make it sexy together. But um, yeah. But for those who are listening who don't know about this, this is a term that was coined um, in 1933 by Joan Robinson, um, an economist who we dedicated the book to. She warned us of the dangers of monopsony. And let me just unpack a little bit what it's about, and hopefully people will still keep listening despite the, the, despite the fact that a lot of people turn off when they hear the word. And in fact, technically what we're talking about is oligopsony, which is perhaps even less appealing. Um, and like we kind of all have a pretty good idea about what monopoly is because we've got a board game for that. It's where a seller's got lots of power over buyers. So Amazon over consumers um, can have monopoly power. But monopsony is where a buyer has a lot of power over sellers. And so this Amazon in its, in its dealings with publishers, for example, and all kinds of other sellers that need to access its marketplace in order to, to, to access consumers. Um, and monopsony is really dangerous for reasons that aren't particularly well recognized. For one thing, it accrues at way lower market concentrations than monopoly does. So just eight or 10% um, of a market can give a buyer lots of power over sellers. And that's why when um, Amazon, for example, started the Gazelle project, which is exactly what it sounds like, they set out to, um, to uh, target the weakest publishers in the market. In, in order to uh, take more and more of their margin to subsidize the rest of their business so that they could you know, do use that to help eliminate competition. Melville House tried to stand up against them um, and Amazon retaliated by immediately removing the buy button. Um, and Melville House had to give in. And at that time, I think Amazon only had 8% market share, but that was 8% where Melville House wouldn't be able to replace those sales with anyone else. And so they had to give in. And now if you if you think about how concentrated these markets are on the buyer side now, so whether it's Amazon for books um, 
uh, the Hollywood talent agencies, the big three record labels who are in the big three music publishers, um, Spotify and a couple other uh, companies over music streaming and so on and so on, we see that there are, you know, huge, huge dangers here. Yeah. You mentioned that the the purpose of writing the book is to build a path of, you know, what to do. So let's talk about that. What should we do? Yeah. So one of the things that that is uh, distinctive, I think, about our book relative to other books about problems in the economy and, and problems in our modern world was really crystallized well by an editor who rejected it. <laughs> he said, you know, I, I really like this book, but I got to the second half, which is just, you know, one solution after another. It's just like a half the book is just things that we should and could do. And none of them were things that individuals could do. They were all systemic solutions. And that's going to really bum individuals out because they're going to want to take individual solutions. And we were like, dude, you are so close to getting it because you can't shop your way out of a monopoly for the same reason that you can't recycle your way out of climate change. These are systemic problems, right? It's This is not giving your bullied kid more lunch money. This is getting the bullies away from the gate. And we, we have uh, proposals that range from pretty straightforward, kind of the one weird trick realm to some pretty big, ambitious systemic ones. Most of them are not the traditional antitrust, anti-monopoly remedies for, for a couple of reasons. One is that they're not as effective with monopsony. The other is that they're slow. You know, people will tell you that it took seven years to break up AT&T, but from the first time the DOJ tried it until 1982 when it happened, it took 69 years. I don't want to wait 69 years for Penguin Random House or Facebook, Instagram to get broken up. I want this to happen. I want, I want there to be action straight away. And so, you know, in the one weird trick realm, we, we talk about transparency and transparency, not in a generic kumbaya, sunshine is the best disinfectant, but like actionable transparency. So if you um, uh, have a royalty arrangement with a publisher or a label or a studio, that uh, contract probably gives you the right to audit your books. And if you do audit your books, you will often find an error in your favor. We cite some research from a firm that has done tens of thousands of record contract audits over decades. And uh, this is going to shock and amaze you, but out of those tens of thousands, they frequently found accounting errors. And for reasons that no one can adequately explain, all but one of those errors redounded to the benefit of the record label and not the performer. That's an ex that's an extraordinary uh, coincidence, huh? Coincidence. Isolated yeah. probability yeah. storm, yeah, Corey likes it. to yeah, call it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. amazing. If by coincidence you mean indictment, then yes. <laughs> <laughs> so if you do, when you do find this money owed to you, we, we, we said a source who had a six-figure accounting error in their favor, you will quite rightly ask for that money to be paid to you. And they are apt to say, well, no, I'm sorry. You've done your math wrong. We don't actually owe you anything. But because we're such good-natured slobs, tell you what, we'll give you a discount on that. We'll give you some of that money. But to get that settlement out of us, as opposed to suing us, which you probably can't afford to do, um, we're going to require you to sign a non-disclosure. Also, we are only going to let you use auditors who haven't audited us before. This is like the murderer saying to the forensics team, you know, dig anywhere you'd like in my garden, except for that corner, which I'm very sentimental about, you know, and, and, and so when you sign this non-disclosure agreement to get your money out of them, you don't get to tell similarly situated people where their stolen money is. Now, because of monopolies, nearly every one of these contracts is consummated in one of four states. You've got California, New York, Washington because of Amazon, and you've got uh, Tennessee because of Nashville. 
And if those states, which after all have uh, the jurisdiction over contracts, were to introduce short bills that said it is a matter of public policy that we will not enforce non-disclosure when it applies to material emissions or errors that redound to the detriment of people entitled to royalties, at the stroke of a pen or four pens, you would in minutes put more money into the pockets of more artists all over the world than 40 years of copyright term extensions combined, substantially more. Right. And that's the kind of transparency beyond Kumbaya. That is transparency that you can use. Until Amazon then just moves its that part of its business out of state the way Microsoft moved its royalties out of state. You can royalty shift by by having the money be realized somewhere else, but you can't jurisdiction shift. Um, you can say that uh, Amazon can say that it has an arm's length arrangement with uh, a third party, uh, you know, that hovers in a state of non-taxable grace over the Irish Sea, and that it can remit uh, a trademark fee or a copyright licensing fee equal to its whole profits so that it, it profit ships out of it. But if I'm in Washington State and you're in Washington State and we sign a contract together, it's very hard to argue that the jurisdiction of that contract is Mars. Interesting. That's so interesting. And so I just have to ask, I mean, you know, this podcast is a, is a sideline for the business of civic ventures, which is social change. And I'm just interested, have you run that bill up the flagpole in Washington State or California? I mean, there's a lot of, there would be a lot of sympathetic folks in California, right? There has been a history of this. So, for example, in the early 2000s, when the record labels that, you know, I'm talking about the big three record labels were engaging in the most egregious abuses. And, and we've got a whole chapter on this called Why Prince Changed His Name, where we unpack um, exactly what happens when you give labels unfettered power over the people they're supposed to be representing. And it's really just an extraordinary litany of abuses. Uh, there were a bunch of bills that were put up in California at that time, especially around around auditing. It came very close to, to passing. Then what we saw, however, was, you know, with the the advent of the internet and digital technologies and and particularly file sharing, you know, the, we saw an almost complete collapse of the business model of recorded music. Um, and we don't want to romanticize this period by any means because so many people just in almost an instant lost their livelihood. But what we also saw was a democratization um, uh, and, and a de-choke pointification, if you will, around how people could get their music to customers, to, to audiences. Um, and that meant that the, the record labels had to reform the most egregious practices, uh, at least for you know new contracts that they were entering into, because people finally had a choice. And that's a really important lesson when we talk about the, the solutions in this book and Corey mentioned the fact that um, monopsony power is something that uh, traditional antitrust solutions or competition law solutions really struggle to respond to. But we do know what does work to respond to monopsony. It's anything that encourages new entrants into a market, that directly regulates excessive buyer power, and that builds countervailing power in workers and suppliers. Um, and so that's what we saw, and that that can result in in those same sort of reforms. But absolutely, we should be we should be seeing more of it actually happening in practice, um, like we were seeing in those bills. But un unfortunately, the 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 big challenge uh, is that there is a lot of money to push for more copyright when it means more copyright for the powerful rights holders, like the Motion Picture Association and the recorded uh, the Recorded Music Industry Association. But there's very little money for uh, for actions that support creators over those powerful rights holders because creators don't have any money. 
And it's really difficult without resources to mobilize for those causes. So that's why you see things like we we talk about the importance of having time limits on copyright contracts. But um, that reality is why, you know, every every time you've had a termination law or a reversion law passed, um, those powerful lobbyists have managed to water it down to the point where it is almost um, unusable and, and and not worth anything for, for creative workers. And so we do have to find better ways of mobilizing and creating solidarity um, in order to do that. And a lot of our book is about that too. When we talk about transparency in your things like in, in auditing rights, there's an importance of transparency that goes well beyond that. And that is around the fact that it's so difficult to fight an enemy if you don't know what they look like. Um, and my favorite story in the book that that shows us this is around the the Audible, Audible Gate scandal. And that, for those of you who haven't heard about it, Audible, of course, is a huge monopolist and monopsonist when it comes to audiobooks. Customers of us or subscribers of Audible Gate, those who were signed up for a new credit every month, were given um, an almost unbelievably generous offer to be able to return their their audiobooks. No question that's no questions asked for a full credit, even if they'd had them for maybe a year, even if they'd listened to the whole thing, even if they'd enjoyed it, you know, no problem at all. And what people didn't realize is when they took advantage of that and sort of used the service like a library, is that Audible was clawing back the full royalty from the author. What they they wanted to do was get the subscribers locked in. So the more value they could give them, as long as they didn't have to pay for it. But the other thing that they did is they hid this. They knew that this was absolutely not okay. Um, and Amazon and Audible are notoriously secretive. So what they did is they, because nobody's forced them to report transparently, they hid this. Um, in a little accounting fiction that they called net sales. So an, an author might, you know, log on to their sales dashboard and see, oh, I sold five audiobooks today. What they didn't see is they sold 15 audiobooks today, but 10 of the previous sales had been returned. And so they were just seeing the net result. So they t- they did this without the permission of well, the authors? So I think it was it, I think it was understood in the contracts that this is what would happen, right? If somebody hated it and would return it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but no one would have ever imagined that they were using it as a promotional vehicle. Yeah, it's brilliant and dastardly. But the authors were starting to suspect something was up because they were seeing these weird sales patterns. Their sales were falling in a way that they really couldn't figure out. And they thought it might be returns. There was this woman called Susan May who was on the case. And then what happened is there was a sales glitch, one, a, a reporting glitch one day, and three weeks of returns data showed up in a single day. And so the veil was lifted and people saw, you know, sometimes it was hundreds of returns over that, you know, uh, over that three week period. And they realized the scale of this and how much it was impacting their bottom line. Having that insight, right, meant that they were able to mobilize, that they had something to fight, that they were able to to go after Amazon and Audible, again, led by Susan May. Um, she was supported by a woman called Colleen Cross in this. Um, and this is a this is maybe one of my favorite stories in the book as well. Former forensic accountant turned writer of forensic crime thrillers who found herself in the plot of one of her, of her own novels, basically. Yeah. <laughs> she started thinking, well, hang on a minute. If they're doing this to us over returns, what else are they doing to us? So she took her forensic eye to the contracts and to the royalty statements. And she figured out if they were actually paying us the way that they were supposed to be paying us, the way the contracts say that they do, this doesn't add up at all. Um, and, and she told us she thinks that Amazon actually didn't just pull this accounting scam, 
they'd possibly counted the returns twice. So not just not just um, completely um, scammed authors on these returns thing, but then did it again. But then also still um, took, I think, close to 90% of the income in some cases for books that have been fully financed by the authors themselves. And, and then hidden all of this in these accounting fictions. So it, it's really extraordinary. They're still, they have managed through through solidarity, working together and public organizing. They have managed to get um, Audible to reform some of the most egregious of these practices, but there's so much more work to be done. And they obviously need to be assisted with rights to transparency, with rights to accurate information, with rights to be able to bring a class action in the event that you, you know, you are being screwed over. Um, and that's another thing that's being, you know, constantly taken away with these contracts that insist on commercial arbitration, for example. Um, what that is, is it's not legal, it's administrative. It doesn't have precedential value. The arbitrators are paid for by the people um the big companies that they're being used against. And we know from the research that arbitrators put a pretty heavy thumb on the scale and the side of the people who are actually paying the bills. And so there's, there's lots of things that we can do to build that countervailing power in workers and suppliers, but we need the political will to do so. And that means all of us stepping yeah. forward and saying enough is enough. Yeah. I have a question for you, Corey. You have been at this for a very long time, both as a writer and an activist. And I've been a content creator for a long time. And I can tell you personally, you know, watching the invention of the internet, the explosion of online commerce, all of the opportunities it created, there were times where I was incredibly optimistic about th what this would mean for content creators. Considering where we are now, are you surprised by how it turned out? Or, or did you see this coming, you know, in the 90s? So I think that you you are right to ask whether the so-called, you know, internet utopians had a blind spot. And I think there's a story about where the internet utopians were that I, that isn't right. But the, the question, did internet utopians have a blind spot? The answer is a resounding yes, but it's not the blind spot most people accuse them of. So there's this idea that, you know, 25 years ago, modem adult Gen Xers thought that if we could just give everyone the internet, then everything would be fine. And I don't think anyone, I don't think that was the dominant motif among people who were uh, thinking about this stuff. We were all reading cyberpunk. Cyberpunk is not a story about how things all turn out fine once everyone <laughs> no, has a modem. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't found an organization like the Electronic Frontier Foundation because you think everything is going to be fine, yeah. right? You, you, right, you, yeah. Your, your added, the attitude, I think, is best expressed in, in the title of a, of a white paper on 3D printing uh, by Michael Weinberg, which is, this will all be so great if we don't screw it up, right? I, I kind of want that on my tombstone. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the, the um, thing that I think we missed was not that the internet could be a tool of, of control and repression and regression. And what we failed to recognize was that those were the last days of antitrust, that antitrust was drawn down and drawn down. Uh, we saw increased tolerance for all of the anti-competitive conduct that had historically been prohibited, notably mergers. Apple buys more companies than you or I buy groceries. They, they, they bought 90 companies in 2019, according to Tim Cook speaking to Kara Swisher. Uh, and, and also 
um, companies that would grow by buying other companies. So Google is a company with just a few successful products. They made a great search engine, pretty good Hotmail clone, a browser that is good but has its problems. Uh, everything else that they tried to build was a failure and all their successes are companies they bought from someone else on terms that would have been prohibited under a more muscular historic concept of antitrust. And so you have this company that is consolidated under its roof uh, ad tech and video server management, all this stuff that they had to buy from someone else that if they hadn't been permitted to buy, they would have had to compete with other users of those same services, which which would have made it much harder for them to consolidate their gains and lock in their users. And and that's what we missed. We, we missed that um, the gains from an anti-competitive environment could make firms too big to fail and too big to jail and give them access to the levers of policy so that they could make it illegal to do unto them what they had done unto others. If you were to reverse engineer uh, the file formats that Apple uses for iTunes and Apple Books and videos and make interoperable players, they'd reduce you to radioactive rubble. They'd say you violated the DMCA and the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, that you were engaged in tortious interference of contract, that you had violated their trademarks, that you'd violated their patents. They would just destroy you. Right. What was good for the goose will never be good for the gander unless we also have muscular antitrust. And that's what we missed. Mm -hmm. So your sh your short answer is it's nothing inherent in the Internet. It it's all Robert Bork's fault. Well, if anything, the Internet <laughs> was was and is better suited to creating a a. a um, a competitive environment because of that interoperability. Right. You know, the only computer we know how to build is the Turing complete von Neumann machine that can run all the software we know how to write, which means that you can always make a new system that interconnects with the old system and just lets it work. Yikes. I'm not sure if you guys did your research on me, but <laughs> just... yeah, I was the first investor in, in Amazon and uh, also created one of the first internet advertising businesses, but, but both of those things, I was absolutely convinced were making the world a better place. And I was super wrong on both counts. You know, you just, <laughs> well, <laughs> you you just... Should, I, I recommend to you, uh, Maria Farrell's uh, articles and forthcoming book on what she calls the prodigal tech bro about, <laughs> about what it means to recant. So yeah. they're, they're very good. Yeah. Okay. I'll check it out. I'll hold Nick accountable in the outro to this interview. There you go. <laughs> there you go. A final question, Nick. Yeah. We, you want to yeah. ask it? Well, yeah. Why do you both do this work? I really believe in connection and community that art make, and culture make life worth living, that they make us understand the nature of the human experience um, and that they bring us together. And, uh, you know, I, I was born in a house without books. And I was always starving for stuff to read and was one of those little kids that, you know, you would see walk into a tree because they're, you know, that they're, they're, they're reading a book, which I got from school libraries and from charity shops that I would haggle really hard with the softest touch volunteer to, I mean, I was adorable. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I think that that kind of creation story explains it. Um, I really want, um, appropriate recognition and rewards for for authors and artists and I really want to facilitate access to knowledge and culture because I think that's kind of the point and that's why I do this work and I don't know that I can stop even though 
<laughs> it is extremely painful, but this is why, you know, you know, with Corey, why we're doing stuff like this to try and change the the nature of the conversation away from this adversarial zero sum false dichotomy of creators versus users to how can we get more of what everybody wants? How can we get more of the good stuff and less of the terrible stuff? How can we stop making things worse? And that's really where I focus. How about you, Corey? I started off talking about copyright because for me, there were so many manifest benefits from the file sharing world that, and they weren't about pricing has I was I had money then and I, I, unlike you know a few years before when I'd been like a, a starving student by that point I was in my professional life and I could afford uh creative works but the, you know 80 percent of the recorded music wasn't for sale at any price and you know the the experience of uh consuming music had become increasingly isolated for me but you know when I could be on the road for work in a hotel room at one in the morning and go spelunking on Napster and find some band that I loved in high school and start downloading it and notice that the whose whose music was no longer commercially available in any format and then find the proprietor of that Napster node was online and get into a chat about the shows that we'd both been in when we were teenagers growing up in Toronto that was this incredibly powerful experience for me and you know the annihilation of that and its replacement with effectively nothing for many years. And then iTunes, which was a very impoverished version, was was so um, gross that I, I got more and more involved with it. But very quickly, I, I came to realize that the important values that I had that were much greater than access to material and even access to people who shared my taste um, were, were really being jeopardized, that we were making our speech forums more brittle by creating takedown regimes. We were making it harder for new kinds of organizations to create speech forums and expressive forums by creating compliance hurdles uh, about having to run automated filters and so on. And that ultimately we were abetting uh, a wider project of, of allowing big tech to get bigger and making it harder for the kinds of things that that mattered to me about tech, uh, which was its liberatory potential to flourish, because we were setting up a world in which big tech was being asked to solve the problems it created, which meant that we couldn't afford to make it smaller, right? If if YouTube, if you have to be as big as YouTube to run a hundred million dollar content ID filter, then we can't make YouTube smaller. If we did, then they couldn't afford the filter that we demand that they run. Whereas if we come up with solutions that are systemic and address creators' issues, rather than um, the issues that the intermediaries who purport to represent them have, then uh, we could create a system in which you could have more creator-focused, even creator-owned and run online services, and that we could do so without co-opting creators into a wider project of just making it easier to remove things from the internet because you don't like it. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely fascinating conversation. And uh, boy, we wish you well on your project. Well, thank you, guys. Yeah. Thanks for the book. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for the chat. It was so lovely to, to be here with you. So, Nick, as you can imagine, uh, I saw a lot of myself and my own experiences yeah, in for sure. what Corey and Rebecca were describing. Did you see a lot of yourself in there too? As, yeah, uh, for sure. As one of the winners? Of, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. No, no. I mean, you know, like I, I definitely knew what the right side of the, the right side of that trade, right? It was always super obvious to me where you wanted to be. 
just why I'm a good business person. But, you know, the other thing that just is so obvious, and this is just another great instantiation of the generalized problem is that it's all about power. Mm-hmm. And, and it just reminds you how destructive it was to excise issues of power from economic analysis. And, you know, and, and Goldie, one of the things that just, I just, it makes me want to throw up is all this new talk about monopsony as if this problem <laughs> has not always existed. And as, and as if you need the word monopsony to see it and address it and think about it, like it just, it's just so obvious and and you've made this point, you know, to be clear, it's not just it's not just Amazon. You know, there's those studies that show when Walmart moves into. Yeah. Before Amazon, it was Walmart. And before Walmart, yeah, it was Kmart. When, when Walmart Kmart, moves Kmart, in, it was Sears. Wages and, you know, fall. Like, yeah. Right. Uh, but this, in, yeah. in retail, particularly in grocery. And that is, you know, that that Walmart effect is a real thing. And it's not just limited to Walmart and and yeah. uh, Amazon. You've you've seen that all over. You know, I I asked that question of Corey whether he saw this coming or not, because we're we're about the same age and we saw it all, you know, happening real time. And I was very hopeful about the how democratizing it would be for content creation. And at, at points it was I couldn't have become a blogger without it. Yeah. But I want to ask the same um, though that was short-lived. I mean, there were a few year, few years there where the net roots yeah. were riding high. And then, of course, everything consolidated and uh, we lost our audience too. I asked that question of Corey, if he saw it coming, when when you were, you know, huddling with Jeff, reimagining uh, the future of commerce, did you see it coming? Well, yeah, absolutely. Cards on the table, we didn't just see it coming, was what we were aiming for. You know, you have to remember that part of my origin story is that, you know, I I was at the time working for a family business that had to do business, family manufacturing company, a company that made pillows and down comforters and sold to all of the other major retailers in America. And mostly dealing with those people was frigging awful. Right. Like you, Similar to my experience. Yeah. Of dealing with I mean, retail. oh my God, you know, like, I mean, we had more power than you did, but it was still right. like, if you want to know what hell is like, try selling polyester pillows to Kmart in the day. So I had little uh, sympathy for uh, what I suspected would be the demise of all these people. But, you know, like I said before, now, you know, now you've swapped one problem out for another and, you know, and it just, look, is there a lesson to be learned here? Yeah. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. <laughs> and if there is one universal law that you can abstract from thousands of years of human experience, it is that concentrated power is always bad. It just is always bad. And you should work assiduously as a society to make sure that no entities get too powerful. And we have not done that in the United States. On the contrary, we told ourselves a story that let us believe that the bigger the big got, the better off everyone would be. And that was not true. And now we're paying the price. Uh, But so as not to close on such a bleak note, I do encourage people to pick up the book, Choke Point Capitalism, 
course, there's a link to it in the show notes. And there are solutions. They they do propose a bunch of solutions in the book, some of them harder than others, uh, some of them more likely than others. But there are things we can all do both individually and collectively to uh, create the countervailing power that we need in the economy, not just for content creators, but for workers everywhere. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.